You're listening to The Pithy Chronicle. History with a bite. I'm Caroline. And I'm Erica. And we bring you history's dirtiest deeds dripping with sarcasm. Are you hungry yet? Hey there, pithy listeners, and welcome to our first ever Spooktacular. To celebrate our love of the grim and gruesome, we are dedicating all five episodes of October to the macabre. You're welcome! Before we plunge into the deepest dark depths of history's most terrifying tales, we have a message from one of our patrons. With a correction. Yes. And we love these because, you know, we're human. We get things wrong. And listen, this listener, Lauren, thank you so much for reaching out. She came prepared with the details. She brought to my attention. We accidentally said Henry Percy rather than Henry Norris in regards to Anne Boleyn's comment about you look for dead men's shoes. So, oops. Yep. Whoopsies. Lauren let us know that Norris was actually engaged to Anne Boleyn's cousin, Madge Shelton, and was putting off the wedding. And when Anne questioned him, like, Uh. hey, dude, why are you doing this? This was what elicited the cheeky response. Are you waiting to see if you can marry me instead? Naughty, naughty. Right. Cool. Henry Percy, and this is where I think I got mixed up, was Anne's secret fiance in 15th, 16 years before she came to any kind of attention from Henry VIII. They were madly in love, but were forced to separate because Wolsey and his father had planned for him to marry Mary Talbot instead, while Anne was supposed to marry her cousin, James Butler. So they were forcibly separated, and Percy's marriage was rushed through, which, you know, made it a pretty unhappy one. Percy was later a juror for Anne Boleyn's trial. (gasps) No. But collapsed and died soon after. The strain. The stress. I mean, should I condemn my first love to a beheading for suspicious circumstances? (laughs) Yeah, for incest. Oh, yeah, and that. And wishcraft. (laughs) Oh, God. And then Lauren had some clarity for us about the boys in the tower. Edward V was living in Wales as Prince of Wales under the care of Anthony Woodville, and that's his uncle. His maternal uncle. Yes, when Edward IV died. He was taken into custody by his uncle, paternal Richard, while traveling to London for his coronation. There was some debate about how many people would travel with him. Everyone was a little on edge about what would happen in terms of who was controlling this child. Would it be the maternal uncle or the paternal uncle? And rightly so, it seems. Richard, of course, has Anthony Woodville killed. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Trumped-up charges. And Elizabeth now didn't trust Richard even more, especially after... Because he killed her brother. Exactly. Along with, like, a ton of other people. So she took all of her children into sanctuary at Westminster Abbey... Richard, the Duke of York, was with her for a few weeks. That's her son, Richard, not Uncle Richard. Prince number two. Until he was taken forcibly to the tower to join his brother for his coronation, which was still being planned. And that's not totally unheard of because monarchs usually do stay at the Tower of London before their coronation. 
but it was only after this that Richard declared Edward IV's children illegitimate, took the crown for himself, taking over the coronation organized for Edward V. The brothers were seen around the tower from time to time until they were withdrawn deeper into the tower and <clears throat> never seen again. <laughs> deeper into the tower. You know, I've been there. There's just not, like, it's not that it's, deep. Is it not that deep? <laughs> I guess that means dungeons. That's how I'm reading deeper into the tower. They went from one of the rooms with a window to one of the rooms without a window. So those are our corrections from our patron on Patreon. Thank you, Lauren. We really love the corrections. We've received a couple. We're human. We make mistakes. Feel free to fact check us. It's kind of fun. Although I this love episode, it. I love knowing more. This episode, fact checking will be slightly harder because we've got a lot of contradicting opinions and facts. Contradicting facts. Unusual. Love it. So to start us off, we are plunging into the darkness of Castle Cheta's crypt. And where exactly is that? Near, <clears throat> and I'm going to butcher this, so please be generous and kind with my Hungarian pronunciation because, well, I don't speak Hungarian. What? I know. It's near present day Nove Mesto nad Volham and Trenson in Slovakia. All right, so I have never heard of that other than, you know, Slovakia, but why are we going there? Tell me more. We are going to learn about the most prolific serial killer in history, Elizabeth Bathory. Oh, I've definitely heard of her. She's notorious, infamous, all of the great things. I feel like I remember a bathtub of blood. And we're going to talk about it. Yes. The future Countess Elizabeth Bathory de Echid was born in 1560 on her family's estate in Nirbator, part of Royal Hungary. Is Royal Hungary the same as Hungary as we know it today? <clears throat> Great question. No. Royal Hungary, or the Kingdom of Hungary, existed from 1526 to 1867. It wasn't part of the Holy Roman Empire, but it was part of the Habsburg family lands, or at least parts of it were part of the family lands. And so eventually it did become part of the Austrian Empire in 1804. It's south of Poland, east of the Holy Roman Empire, and west of Transylvania, which was at the time part of the Ottoman Empire. And there will be maps in the show notes because I know that's confusing. Yeah, I definitely need to be more oriented than that. So how is that compared to modern day Hungary? <sighs> It's roughly in the same area, but that's a pretty vast simplification. It's slightly smaller and slightly more to the east. To my father's deep shame, I am not a geography expert, especially 16th century geography. How dare you? I know, it's just, it's unbelievable. But that's not the important part. The important part is that she is considered to be the most prolific serial killer in history. And some of the estimates of her carnage claim that she murdered 650 young women. <laughs> that must have been a really big bathtub. Huge, I guess, if it was all one go. But that is not the whole story. Or rather, it is the story, not the facts. Tell me. 
I'm going to structure today's episode slightly differently. Like many macabre subjects in history, Elizabeth Bathory and her bloody deeds are bathed in folklore. Literally. Mm-hmm. It is said, as Erica pointed out, that she bathed in the blood of virgins to retain her youth and beauty. You know, virgins are really hard to find nowadays. <laughs> oh, that is so terrible. I'm sorry. I wouldn't oh actually murder people. You know, virgins it's are, just... uh, that's fair. And we'll talk about it later. But to do a single bath of blood would require about 30 virgins. 30? Really? That's a lot for of people bath? to murder for one bath. So let's just keep that is in mind. Is she submerging in the bath or is Okay, it... we'll get to the bath. Valid questions it, deserve valid like answers. Oh my lord. <laughs> it is widely believed that Bram Stoker's Dracula was inspired by her legendary bloodthirst. And for generations, it was actually illegal for Hungarians to even speak her notorious name. My god, the original she who must not be named. Tales of her evil deeds spread far and wide, and even today her story inspires gruesome video games, sensational historic fantasy novels. There are even a few romance novels that I found, which I find very hard to swallow. Like, how could this possibly be sexy? But have you read it? No! But have you read it? No. I like a good romance novel. There is no judgment there. But no... That mm-mm. maybe they're going that she's misunderstood route. I'm sure they're really doing not... that, but no. What if there's no bathing in the virgin's blood at all in it? I should hope there wouldn't be. <laughs> more than one metal band has appropriated her name to give themselves a little bit more edge. And of course, there are a number of films that have portrayed her in various vilified ways. But, and this is a really, really big but. I like big. Butts and I cannot lie. (laughs) But is it true? After more than four centuries of censure and slander, new evidence, or perhaps I should say old ignored evidence, has come to light. See, there could be a romance novel in here. Okay. You're just hating on it. I I am hating on it. There's no question. (laughs) There are now more than a few historians who argue that she was falsely accused, slandered in life and in death. Slander is not good. Don't do it, kids. But it makes a really good story. does make for an interesting tale. It's a better story, probably. But why? Why do we hate her so much? Is it because she's a her? Is it because she was rich or beautiful? Tell me, why do we hate her? Well, we don't hate her. You're not going to read her romance novel. You hate her. I'm not going to read her romance novel. All right, we'll get into the why she might have been falsely accused in a bit. I just want to tell you her story as it has been told since her imprisonment and death. Partly because it's a lot of fun. And partly to show our listeners what she's up against. What these historians 400 years later are trying to change or at least pump the brakes. (laughs) Then I'll give you the details address all of the errors or exaggerations, and then give a few alternate points of view. In the end, we, you and I, Erica, get to decide. The Chronicler Court is now in session. Was Elizabeth Bathory truly a psychotic killer who murdered nearly 700 girls for her own sadistic pleasure? Or was she the victim of a political conspiracy with her name and reputation dragged through the mud forever stained? Are you ready? 
I'm just really excited to be a judge in this case. Dream come true. Here is the infamous story of Elizabeth Bathory. Born in 1560 on her family's vast estate within royal Hungary, Elizabeth was a part of the ancient and noble Bathory family. Her parents, Georgi and Anna, were very close relatives. Like, very, very close. Like, how close? It is said that Bathory's, to keep their bloodline pure, so, so many Harry Potter references here, married each other. And Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon, are these people Targaryen close? I think they are Targaryen close. I think that's a great way to describe it. Okay. Marrying each other often led to mental illness and other genetic disorders within her family. Her uncle, for instance, Stephen, the future king of Poland, Grand Duke of Lithuania, and Prince of Transylvania, was severely epileptic. But that was okay because his brothers were well-known tyrants and criminals who went off the deep end. Stephen's father, Elizabeth's grandfather, was considered crazy because evidently he liked to take sleigh rides in the middle of summer. Why did the sleigh rides make him crazy? Because there was no snow. Did he think there was snow, or does he just prefer a sleigh to a carriage? No, he thought it was snowing. It's a beautiful day for a snowy sleigh ride, and it was 85 degrees outside. Well, now that's a different story, but let's be honest. Sometimes I think a nice sleigh might be better than a carriage, (laughs) but anyway. Let me just get this straight. Instead of the Habsburg jaw, this family had Batorimania or something akin to Something like that, yeah. Instead of being weird looking, they were just mentally unstable. Had some mental illnesses. Big ones. Hmm. Every member of her family was important. Her mother was Baroness Anna Batory, daughter of the Voivode of Transylvania, which was the highest ranking official in Transylvania. Mom's brother, her uncle, was Andrew Bonaventura Batory. Yeah, these are these are good names. I'm having to work hard for these names. I appreciate it. But for them to be, so woohoo. They're doing good on the names. No repeats so far. Good for no them. No more Louis, 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 Louis. Mm-hmm. Uncle Bonaventura went on to hold the prestigious position of Voivode himself. Her father was a baron. She was niece to a king, a cousin to a cardinal, and she had some dukes and princes in her line. So she was a BFD. Her early years were spent at Echid Castle where she was considered to be a sickly child due to the multiple seizure attacks. Epileptic uncle, I can see the connection, but did she grow out of these? Was it just a childhood thing? Um, I don't know that, but I do know that she was treated for them. Do you want to hear how they treated falling sickness, as it was known at the time? Do I want to? I mean, you do, because this is our October episode with gore. You do, but I'm, mm, this might not be nice. They would rub the blood of non-sufferers onto the lips of the epileptic. Hmm. Or perhaps, even worse, they would give the epileptic a concoction of non-sufferers' blood and a piece of skull as soon as their seizure had ended. Well. You're welcome. That is a Mm -hmm. full Mm -hmm. medical treatment right there. It feels very scientific. Oh, extremely. She is... (laughs) So, bathing in blood at an early age. Mm -hmm. She is also documented as experiencing painful migraines and violent mood swings. I mean, same. Though she was raised Calvinist Protestant, her early life was infused with violence, which 
honestly wasn't that unusual at the time. It was a violent world. And royal hungry peasants were considered property. And therefore, nobility were allowed to do with them as they pleased. Again, this is not very shocking. But, but, it could really get out of hand. Uh, sure. For example, her uncle Stephen, Mr. King of Poland, you know, title, 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 in a fit of rage, once ordered the ears and noses to be cut off of all the local peasants who'd fomented rebellion against him. Oh, now that's some Ivan the Terrible-ish. Yeah, they took it to a new creative level. She also witnessed a lot of public executions. A basic family outing for the time. Yeah, I mean, hey, sweetie, it's a Sunday. No, they wouldn't do it We're on going Sunday. going to church. That's God's day. Yeah. It's a Monday. It's a Monday afternoon affair. We're the monotony of it. life. Let's let's do let's it. Let's break up that monotony. Yep. With a killing. Jeez, Manetti, this is terrible. So, okay. on one occasion, she watched as a local gypsy woman who was accused of kidnapping and selling children into slavery, which does sound very bad, was sewn into a horse's stomach to slowly asphyxiate surrounded by the horse's final meal. My God, these people are creative. I mean, the imagination Amazes. Where do you come up with that? That would never occur to me. I feel... Yeah, where do you come up with that? Like, did you have a dream? But despite these, <clears throat> shall we say, less civilized influences, she was a very well-educated and cultured woman. She was adept at languages, speaking fluent Hungarian, Slovak, Greek, Latin, and German. And even more importantly for the time, though the feminist in me is screaming at this, she was beautiful. Of slender build and creamy complexion, her raven black hair gave her a very striking appearance. Rumor has it that she actually gave birth at the young age of 13. The father was a peasant of no consequence who was eventually executed by her husband-to-be. And the child was entrusted to a local woman who was paid to take it away to Valachia, which is a part of Romania, with strict instructions never to return while Elizabeth lived. Wow. I just thought that was the weirdest way to phrase it. That same year, she was engaged to Count Ferenc Nadazdi of the noble Nadazdi family. The Nadazdis were respectable, conservative, pious, or so say the chroniclers. According to custom, she was sent to her future mother-in-law's court to learn under her, which I actually think is an amazing system. Far better than shipping some poor girl off to be married immediately with no knowledge of where she's going. Two years later, at age 15, she married the 19-year-old Count in an enormous wedding. The ceremony lasted three full days, and it included nearly 5,000 guests. Now that is a budget. Who put these people up? There could not be enough rooms in the town to accommodate this. It's crazy. The logistics probably were terrible. There probably had to be a makeshift village made. Think Field of Gold kind of situation. Mm-hmm. You know mm -hmm. what? I'm down for it. I'm here for a party. If I could I would have, have had, been thrilled to be invited to this wedding. If I could have had 5,000 people at my wedding, I would have. But I couldn't. I don't think I know 5,000 people. I like could legitimately... have found 5,000 people. Oh, okay. I don't know that I... are inviting the commoners. <laughs> Her wedding combined two of the most powerful Hungarian families and her wedding presence. You'll like this bit. Her wedding presence reflected this. Yes. Hubby Ferenc gave his new bride a castle, mm. the castle of Cheda, 
which is in present-day Slovakia. Yes, I want a castle. Done. Dear husband, take note. (laughs) He also gifted her a country house, and I think we can assume it was like a very fancy country house, along with 17 adjacent villages and all of their peasants. You know what? Scratch the castle. I really just want a lavish country house. Yeah, the castle feels kind of drafty. Stone cold. How cold that was. But you know what? She's going to need the castle because she needs lots of cellars. But I don't. That's true. Good point. I don't. I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) Additionally, and this is super cool, he actually adopted her maiden name, not the other way around. While both the Nadazhdi and the Batori families were noble and wealthy, the Batori family was much older and more influential. So... He became a Batri to further his ambitions. Be fair, you've got a king and a cardinal. You're doing okay. And a few princes. Yep. Mm -hmm. Just three years after their enormous wedding, the count became the chief commander of the Hungarian troops, known as the Black Knight of Hungary. Not to be confused with Monty Python's Black Knight. For instance, this man kept all of his limbs, as far as I know. As far as you know. And you know what, though? What a moniker. Black Knight of Hungary. It's show-stopping. That's good. It's And good. he was one scary dude, both on and off the battlefield. Stories of his grisly games paint a truly horrifying picture. Allegedly, he'd throw prisoners into the air and then catch them on the tips of his sword. Just for fun. He was also known to torture his servants. He once smeared a girl in honey and then left her outside to be eaten by insects. And he evidently taught his young wife to discipline their servants by putting a piece of oil-soaked paper between their fingers and then setting it on fire. Uh, yeah, it sounds like they were a match made in heaven. Honestly, I think we'll, yes, I think so. Or in hell? In hell, a match made in hell. He was at least a romantic sadist, giving his beloved wife a pair of clawed gloves As in, gloves that have little talons or claws on the end of each finger, which he encouraged her to use on the servants. Well, that is very gaga. (laughs) Yes, it is. Meat dress. Letters between the couple while he was away on campaigns were said to be extremely graphic, but I don't mean in the good way. See, the romance novel would have been great here. Allegedly, she begged him for descriptions of his latest torture techniques, and then reading them, it was said, gave her... Great pleasure. Yeah, okay. Torture foreplay does not does not equal sexy time Mm-mm. for me. It's going to be in... See, you can see why I don't want to read that no, book. No, no. Perhaps, as you said, the pair were very well suited. <laughs> Match made in hell. They were married for 29 years until his death and had lots of kids. The sources differ. I saw eight. I saw six. But seemingly three survived to adulthood. Two daughters and a son. Okay. Beginning in 1596, the Count led the Royal Hungarian troops in the Long War, as it was known, against the Ottomans. This kept him away from home and left Elizabeth in charge of their business affairs and their multiple estates and villages. During this time, she was responsible not only for their possessions, but for their people. Their vast estates were along a direct route from the Ottoman Empire to Vienna. And thus, they were in great jeopardy, and they did have quite a few battles that would come into their areas. During the Long War, Elizabeth did all that she could to prevent the plundering of their villages. She provided medical care for those in need, and she intervened on behalf of her destitute subjects when she could. 
In one documented instance, Elizabeth actually advocated for a woman whose husband was captured by the Ottomans and whose daughter was raped and impregnated by that same invading force. Well, that sounds like a rather nice thing to do. It does, doesn't it? So we'll get there. The Long (laughs) War also meant a lot of travel for the lonely Elizabeth. She could only get so excited by the torture letters. With the Count off murdering prisoners of war, she was free to visit her Aunt Clara, who lived in Vienna. And Aunt Clara, like the rest of the Batteries, she had certain tendencies. She was rumored to have a licentious household that indulged in dark magic and specifically lesbian orgies. Well, sir. <laughs> yes. This is no Aunt Pity Pat, let no, me just say. This is. This no. is. No. This is a new type of aunt. Well, I mean, I don't know. There definitely is the the lesbian witchy aunt. That's true. That is definitely a trope somewhere. But no. Normally they don't don't participate together in orgies. Yeah, I guess not. Mm Mm-hmm. There it is. Okay. Within this shadowy world, Elizabeth gained a taste for witchcraft. She learned from sorcerers, seers, and alchemists who flocked to Aunt Clara's salon. Eventually, and allegedly, she became adept at preparing medicines, stocks, and potions. In a letter to her husband, she gave him instructions to smite his foes. Quote, Catch a black hen and beat it to death with a white cane. Keep the blood and smear a little of it on your enemy. If you get no chance to smear it on his body, obtain one of his garments and smear it there, unquote. That sounds like some Appalachian shit. It really does, yeah. Some some crazy stuff. I was going to go voodoo. It's, it's a, a little, little voodoo-y. During these years apart, rumor of Elizabeth's sadism began to swirl. Beginning in 1585, screams were heard coming from the castle. Her fits of rage became legendary. Locals said she beat some girls so badly that she had to sprinkle sawdust on the ground to soak up all the blood. According to some of the more than 300 witness statements that were eventually taken, she punished her servants cruelly and without merit. She stabbed them under their fingernails, cut off their fingers, and eventually just spiraled into outright murder. In 1604, her husband died of an unknown illness, aged 48. First, he had debilitating leg pain. Then he became permanently disabled. Officially, he died of combat injuries that occurred days earlier. But, you know, the rumor mill spoke of poison. Who's to say? It seemed like they had a very functional, dysfunctional relationship. So why would she poison him? I I find it hard to believe that she would off him. Yeah. Yeah. I find it hard to believe because they were so Mm well-matched. In his final days, the Count entrusted his wife and heirs to Georgi Torzo, his good friend and Elizabeth's cousin. Ironically, six years later, Torzo would lead the investigation against Baturi and arrest her for her brutal crime. Why didn't he just let her deal with it? Not that she's, like, great, but... I think at the time you still kind of, even though she had wealth and power, she was a woman. She still needed a man, and to she do needed the a man to protect her in locked door situations where it was all men, and she couldn't defend herself. Yeah, and I'm sure some someone's got to lead her personal militia. After the Black Knight of Hungary's death, Elizabeth began to spiral out of control. 
Perhaps widowhood affected her sense of mortality. She began a more complicated beauty routine, rubbing all kinds of potions and poultices on her skin in search of youthfulness. She spent hours in front of the mirror each day fussing over her hair. Legend claims a servant girl messed up her coiffure one day, sending Batari into a blistering rage. She began to beat the servant in anger, and soon the girl's lifeless body lay prostrate on the ground. The girl, the room, and Elizabeth were all covered in blood. Elizabeth, after washing away the incriminating evidence, remarked that her skin felt smoother and softer, and she began to wonder if blood, specifically virginal blood, could be the elixir of life, or at least the elixir of youth. From this point on, her sadistic pleasure was amplified by the aesthetic pleasures of bathing in blood. So I can understand like one or two girls going missing, no one notices, but mm-hmm. with 700, yeah. allegedly, like... Yeah, one would think. And according to some of the 300 plus witness accounts, people did. She began her reign of terror on servant girls who literally belonged to her. Her household traveled between her many estates, and with each new location, she would take on extra female servants. And remember, property. So I guess even if they did go missing, there wasn't much that could be done about it. But locals did begin to comment on the disappearances, and when that would happen, Batari's entire household would just pick up and move to another estate and begin the whole thing again. And of course, she didn't do this alone. You can't get rid of that many bodies. According to the trial, she had a number of accomplices. Uh, why would anyone assist her in this outside of just having to? Were these willing accomplices or I think unwilling accomplices? They were willing and like-minded. Okay, yeah. that was not the answer I was thinking of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It began with Anna Darvulia, her companion since 1601, who was rumored to be a witch. She was said to favor 500 strokes of the whip as her torture of choice. She was described by locals as, quote, a wild beast in a female body. And she was rumored to be Elizabeth's lover. Thank you, Aunt Clara. Thank you, Aunt Clara. She was described by other members of the staff as a heavy supporter of Batari's sadistic streak and supposedly encouraged her to become even crueler, if that's possible. Ilona Yo was a nurse to Elizabeth's children, and allegedly she was the one entrusted to recruit new victims. Anywhere they went, she would immediately go out looking for girls that they could torture and would like help find a place to keep them. Dorka was another accomplice, and evidently she liked to cut off the girl's fingers with scissors. And then there's Jan Ushvari, nicknamed Fiko, and he was described by trial records as, quote, an ugly dwarf. And he was essentially responsible for hiding the corpses. But he's, but he, he, he's, how does he, how is he disposing of the bodies? Well, they used the cellars of the castle. I think he's like pulling them and then he would like clean up the mess. And then supposedly there was a special carriage that the whole village knew. And that was the murder carriage carrying the bodies. At some point, there became so many that they would throw them into the dry moat and then put hungry dogs in there to eat them. And then, of course, some bodies were just left out in the open. Well, okay, then. Yeah. Um, As you might have thought, and as you said, 
People did start to take notice. As early as 1602, a priest and scholar publicly demanded an investigation and wrote to the still-alive count begging him to stop his wife's cruelty. Probably fell on deaf ears for that one, though. Elizabeth also used local epidemics as an explanation for her first victims. A cholera outbreak, she said, wiped out a large portion of her specifically female staff. But eventually, people got wise. Plus, I can't think that the screams from the castle really helped. At this point, Bathory opened a finishing school for minor nobility's daughters. She would invite them to live with her in the castle. She would polish their manners, their languages, their bearing, their appearance... And they might or might not come home. Come hang out. Everyone screams at the castle at night and there's a specific murder carriage. And I'm going to teach you your ABCs and how to set a table. I think these were teenagers that were just needing a bit of polish. And she was, Bathory was such a big name that this would be like Kate Middleton, sorry, Princess Catherine opening up a finishing school and being like, anyone who's anyone can come and pay me to make sure your daughters are pristine and ready for marriage. And they'll have the battery seal of approval. The school was, in some ways, a brilliant idea, especially because battery began to believe that the quality of the blood impacted its effectiveness on the skin. I.e. noble blood is better than peasant. So now she had a replenishing supply of highborn virgins. And life being so precarious in those days, she sadly had to inform some parents that their precious daughters had caught a chill, were overtaken by consumption, had a hunting accident. if we're being honest, there were a lot of ways to die that were pretty common. I could see where that, that, you Mm -hmm. know, if she's, Mm -hmm. if she's got such varied excuses. You could get away with it for the first few. It would be harder. Good on her? But not. With these girls also came the attention of the higher ranks upon Bathory. Mm-hmm. And after a while, everything kind of spiraled out of control. Indeed, at some point, I guess, she just fell into madness and no longer bothered to hide her tracks. When there were too many corpses for the cellars, she put them in shallow pits, the castle moat with the hungry dogs. So it became like a little production line or reduction line. It was very structured. By 1610, the Hungarian king, Matthias II, had received 12 different complaints about her murderous tendencies. Only 12? Only, that's my question. <laughs> Just 12? There were like 100 or so? The Habsburg king had no choice. He assigned Georgi Torzo, the man who swore to protect her upon her husband's death, to investigate. Torso was the palatine or the highest ranking official in Hungary at the time. Well, he obviously didn't do a very good job of protecting her or protecting oh, the interests oh, we're of the get family. There. Don't make assumptions. You know what they say. I do. Within a few months, Torso had collected 52 witness statements and as much evidence as he could find. At first, his investigation was a secret. Witnesses spoke of torture, murder, and cannibalism, but none of them had actually seen it with their own eyes. Three pastors reported discovering bodies in tunnels that connected the castle to the church. But again, no eyewitnesses. In December of 1610, Torzo made an unannounced visit, catching the countess red-handed mid-torture. 
He then ordered the castle to be searched, and while Elizabeth watched, body after body after body was brought from the cellars and placed in front of her. One young lady was actually still alive, though severely beaten. Who did hurt you? Dorzo asked, and she responded, quote, A woman tore me with tongs, and the lady widow beat me with hand. Elizabeth, faced with such overwhelming evidence, claimed that it was all her servants doing, quote, I let them do it because even I was afraid of them. Hmm. Yeah, well, once again, the servants are the scapegoats. Uh, although in this case, not so much. It didn't really work. After the search was complete, Torzo's investigation found more than 50 corpses within the castle. The Countess and her accomplices were now questioned. Unsurprisingly, the servants questioned under torture all confessed. Shocking. They blamed each other, the Countess, and a lot of them blamed the now deceased Anna Darvulia. Fico, the dwarf, testified that she'd always been cruel to her servants while the Count was alive. But after his death, she'd started to murder just for the fun of it. He claimed, again under torture, that she personally had killed 37 girls. The other stated numbers somewhere between 36 and 50 victims. Well, that is a far cry from 650. No, yeah, no it's still a big deal. Potatoes, but it's not 650. Evidently, a later witness was found during a reinvestigation, and she claimed to have seen a private book kept by Battery that recorded every single murder and listed exactly 650 of them. How devil's book of her. Mm -hmm. But was it ever produced? We're going to get there. Okay, fine. We are doing the story first. Okay. And the fact check second. Okay. Just days later, a 14-member court met and delivered a decisive verdict. They charged Elizabeth with criminal offenses. Evidently, one local pastor also pushed her to be charged with witchcraft, but that was ignored. In fact, Elizabeth, while charged, was never tried. Instead, her sons-in-law met with Torzo and convinced him not to convict her. If she was found guilty, her familial lands would be confiscated by the crown. So instead, they were like, please, please don't take away all of our money and wealth and land. We'll send her to a nunnery. Mm. But for some reason, for some reason, no nunnery would take her. Oh my God. But why? I'm Can so you believe? Confused. Shock. Shock. But Thorzo decided to avoid the actual trial. Probably a bribe. No one really knows why exactly he didn't do it. Instead, Elizabeth was put under house arrest within the castle Cheda, And that was actually her wedding present from the count. Her accomplices, however, were not so lucky. They were charged with vampirism, sorcery, and pagan rituals. Wow. And they were tried. One minor accomplice with no evidence against her was imprisoned for life, but Fico, Ilonio, and Dorca were all sentenced to death. The dwarf Fico, due to his young age, was granted the mercy of a beheading before having his lifeless body placed on the pyre and burned alongside the very much alive Ilona Yo and Dorca. Wow. Witchcraft. Mm, yeah, that's true. Burnings. I did. I mean, yeah. So now Elizabeth was alone. Torzo himself claimed in a letter to King Matthias II that she was walled up in a solitary room with only a small opening for food. But most sources, even in the stories, say that she kind of had the run of the castle. The Countess never admitted her guilt. 
She protested the verdict many times, writing to King Matthias asking for an acquittal. And eventually, the king did request a re-examination. It was in this second investigation that they collected 336 witness testimonies oh my to gosh. add to the case file. After four years of house arrest, Elizabeth Batri died at age 54. One evening, she complained that her hands were cold, and the next morning, she was found dead in her room. Originally, her remains were buried within the castle church, but at some point, sources claim that her body was unearthed and reinterred in the Batri family crypt. But today, the location of her body is unknown. Oh my, how mysterious. And that, that is the story of Elizabeth Batri, Countess of Royal Hungary, and the most prolific serial killer in history. Well, okay then. Oh, and before I forget, because I know you all want to know, here are some of the torture techniques that she allegedly used. Hmm. Covering victims with honey and leaving them outside for insects to devour. During colder months, she stripped women naked and forced them into deadly ice baths. Driving needles into their fingers, cutting off noses or lips, whipping with stinging nettles, biting their shoulders and breasts, burning their flesh, including their genitals, pouring cold water over the girls and leaving them to freeze to death outside, depriving the girls of food and sleep for weeks at a time, tying them up outdoors just to see what happens, mutilating their genitals with hot pokers and knives, pulling their mouths apart with her bare hands, very Joker-esque, biting off chunks of their flesh, forcing the girls to do this to each other. So some of the torture was forcing other girls to torture the remaining ones. Mm. Stitching seamstresses' mouths closed if she didn't like a new dress. And suspending victims in a swinging iron maiden that would slowly puncture them to death, with blood raining down on her. Wow. Wow. Are these all in the witness statements? Mm-hmm. <gasps> oh, dear. Mm-hmm. But, as I said, this is her story. Fact is often far less exciting than Yeah, but I don't know how you come back from that. Yeah. Yeah. Within the last decade, there have been a number of persuasive historians who have begun to re-examine Batri's life and alleged crimes. And they claim that the entire thing was just that. Fiction. An elaborate spectacle to destroy her influence and steal her land. And damn, was it elaborate. I mean, yeah, that is that is a very thorough story. Like, um... I might find a slightly less ridiculous one, but here we yeah, go. Yeah, tell... I need to know how this... Let's talk politics. I, yeah. <laughs> it turns out that Elizabeth Batri's arrest and the confiscation of her lands and titles benefited a number of very high-ranking officials, including Hungarian King Matthias II. Uh-huh. Royal Hungary was a country divided into three at this time. Mm-hmm. The western bit was ruled by the Habsburgs in Vienna. The central bit was part of the Ottoman Empire. And the eastern part belonged to the Duchy of Transylvania. In fact, her uncle, the future king of Poland, Stephen, Mr. Cut-Off Noses and Ears, was prince of Transylvania. But in 1602, Transylvania fell to the Habsburgs. However... In 1604, there was an uprising and the Habsburgs were pushed out, losing much of their power and influence in the area. In 1606, a peace was concluded in which Vienna, i.e. the Habsburgs, had to accept some very harsh conditions. 
1608, Gabriel Bathory, an obvious relation, was made Prince of Transylvania. Gabriel was a problem for Vienna because he wanted to reunite the entire kingdom of Hungary, force out the encroaching Habsburgs and Ottomans, and then return Hungary to its former independent glory. Oh, and Elizabeth's lands were perfectly placed to give him and his huge armies safe passage throughout Eastern Hungary. They're obviously related, so why can't she just give him safe passage and then make a quick buck off of them coming through her lands and... So, she's fine with him coming through her lands. Okay. It is the Habsburgs that aren't fine with him coming through her lands. Right. The Habsburgs are the ones that are going to frame her in this theory. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Bathory's family had massive influence due to their extreme wealth and huge land holdings. Her son was now the official head of the family, but Bathory still legally possessed all of these lands. Mm-hmm. The Habsburg Empire, next door neighbors to the West, and the family of King Matthias of Hungary were very threatened by this large looming battery shadow. Royal Hungary was in turmoil during this period. Religious and political conflict were rampant. The long war with the Ottomans had cost the kingdom dearly. Protestantism (gasps) was spreading. And the Habsburgs were desperate to expand further into Hungary and kind of secure their, their chokehold. Plus, and this one feels big, plus King Matthias II personally owed an enormous debt to Elizabeth, which was canceled directly after her arrest. That's sus. It feels sus. Just very convenient. Yeah. Today, there is a growing belief that Elizabeth Battery was a wealthy widow with no husband to defend her, whose interest in medicine and her school for girls provided the government the perfect opportunity to invent over-the-top rumors, beginning a conspiracy theory that ended with her wrongful imprisonment and eventual death. Okay, but all the witness statements, number one, and it seems like the easier thing to do would be to just poison her. Like, oops. No, because when she dies, the lands will go to her family. So if she is convicted of a crime, the state, the court gets to take her lands and money. That's the big deal. It's not just that she has to be gotten out of the way. It's that they want all of their stuff. And if she's convicted while she's still alive, the monarchy or the kingdom of Hungary gets to confiscate all of her lands. It still feels like there's a lot of smoke and there's fire. Let's explore the smoke. Mm-hmm. Let's look at this evidence. First, rumors of her alleged torture did not begin until after her very influential husband's death. So right off the bat, it's a little suspicious. I will, however, point out that there was that priest in 1602 that asked the Count to control his wife's violence against her servants. Well, and so, the letters. But but were they real letters? Do we not have... No. Do we not have copies? We have what people say the letters said. But not the OG letters. But not the OG. Okay. No, for some reason, they didn't keep that incriminating evidence around. Hmm. Let's go back to her early biography and try to separate fact from fiction. She was born to two very influential parents whose families were both of the Batari line. However, her parents were not an incestuous marriage, 
as the story goes. They were actually separated by seven generations, meaning their shared ancestor lived more than 200 years prior. And that is more than the Mm -hmm. six degrees of separation required by the Catholic Church. Yep. So yeah, okay. Peasants were by law the property of the nobles, and so she did likely witness a lot of violence against the peasant class and servants. But the whole gypsy sewn into a a horse's stomach thing is not true. Thank God. Mostly because the gypsy's life was worth less than the horse. Yeah. So they probably wouldn't have bothered. Hmm. But it was, however, a legit punishment of the time, and it was reserved for the robbery band chieftains. She might have seen it, it just wasn't a gypsy woman. Did she have a love child at 13? No, almost definitely not. There would be no way to keep that quiet and out of the ears of her betrothed's family. Why would they? I mean, I guess she was pretty influential, but that's a big, big one. one. You don't just you don't just come back from a love child. Mm. You don't, especially at 13. All of this information was brought up after her death. So it was likely just adding kindling to the fire. Mm-hmm. Her wedding was magnificent. I'm so glad that's true. And she did marry into another influential family. They did seem happy, and he was the leading Hungarian military figure. But did she visit her licentious Aunt Clara in Vienna while he was away, studying dark arts and making chicken sacrifices? Probs not. Mm-mm. This was all added after her death to make the story more exciting. Well, it was an exciting portion. It was, it was. But she did fight for women and girls among her people. She took her responsibility to the peasants very seriously. She gave aid during the difficult years of the long war, and she established available health care where she could. She herself became adept at preparing medicines. She studied herbs, and she did play around with alchemy, but both of those were very traditional female interests of the time. In 1601, she invited the notorious Anna Darvolia to join her household. While Anna was later pinpointed as a witch, accomplice, and even an instigator, she was actually a midwife and surgeon from Vienna. Wow. Hmm. Every noblewoman who attended Batari's school was trained in anatomy and learned healing techniques taught by Anna. Because at the time, that would have been very important in the castle or in a village to have a noblewoman, specifically because she had the time, to help people in need. But also probably not common, though. It was not common. That's right. And Anna was from Vienna, which was a slightly different culture. So some of her techniques, some of the things she did would have been very confusing to perhaps the Hungarian culture. They weren't accustomed to how she treated certain illnesses. It's no smearing of blood and skull powder. It's not. And that, I think, actually did happen. So. Yeah. Anna showed them how to do minor surgeries, including cutting out tumors and birthmarks, how to bloodlet, which we now know is bad, but back then, eh, and how to burn wounds with hot irons to prevent infection. And all these actions, cutting, burning, bloodletting, when taken out of context, can easily be called torture. For example, it was said that the Countess would both freeze and scald her victims by putting them out in the cold or by boiling them. But actually, Anna treated fevers by alternating hot and cold baths, which is still something that we do today. If our child has a fever, we'll put them in a bath to help bring it down. As for the deaths... 
there were a number of well-documented epidemics during this time and in this area, both plague and typhus. In fact, there was a recorded outbreak just a week before her arrest in which she lost, according to official records, eight girls in her care. And some historians have postured that this gave Torzo the excuse he needed to arrest her. Bathing in blood, the one story that has stuck with her the most, is almost certainly false. I did a little research, and as I said, it would take more than 30 victims to fill a single bathtub. So even if she killed 650 women, it would only give her 21 baths. Just saying, it's just, just not that many. So it would take a literal bloodbath just to fill one bloodbath. Yep. The story appeared in print for the first time in 1729, 119 years after her arrest and imprisonment. Hmm. It was written by a Jesuit scholar. Then in 1817, so 207 years after her arrest, the original witness accounts from her investigation surfaced. They make no mention of bloodbaths. They also make it clear that the so-called witness accounts were actually more like rumors. <gasps> of the 289 found witness statements, 250 were just pure hearsay or worse. And of the 39 legitimate statements, most contradicted each other. The only government official who was supposedly shown this extensive list of the victims never testified, nor was any such list put into evidence. Many of the witnesses were beholden to Torzo, the former friend and current cousin who was overseeing the investigation, on the orders of the indebted King Matthias II. The servants who confessed all did so under torture. And finally, Torzo's account of catching her in the act was later revealed to be entirely false. He wrote it in a letter to his wife, and he lied. An actual fact, he arrived at the castle to find her in the middle of dinner. Nor did he find a beaten girl who accused the countess of torture. Instead, he found a young woman who had been attacked by a wild animal the day before and was now staying in the castle while the countess and her noble wards treated her wounds. The patient actually survived the encounter, thanks in large part to Batri's ministrations, and yet she was never asked to testify or even interviewed. Holy cow! Oh my gosh! Yep. <laughs> in her final years, Elizabeth was illegally imprisoned without trial, a fact that was scandalous even for the time. King Matthias II pushed for a trial, because if she was convicted, he got all of her lands and money. But Torzo, the investigator slash friend, knew the evidence was thin. Too thin. And perhaps that's why he kept avoiding and postponing it. Some historians have theorized that Turzo may have murdered Elizabeth while she was under house arrest to avoid it ever going to trial because it would have become quite clear that much of this was fiction. Or perhaps Turzo was a true friend. He knew she was guilty and he kept the trial from going forward so that it wouldn't embarrass her family and cost them all their lands. Because she was never convicted, the crown did not get to take all her property and wealth and thus her children and heirs were spared ruin. Torzo is known to have met with her sons-in-law, son-in-laws, I should say, just before her arrest. Were they conspiring to get rid of the old woman and take all their things, maybe giving Torzo a bribe? 
Were they negotiating on her behalf, asking Torzo to avoid trial and perhaps again giving him a bribe? Or was Torzo being an honorable protector and making sure she was never convicted while protecting her family and their reputation and costing the king millions? I have so many feelings about this. Oh my God, I don't even know where to start. Well, that's the question. Did she do it? Was Elizabeth Battery a serial killer? Did she kill a few? Was she just kind of like violent towards her, her servants and maybe had one or two oopsie daisies? Did she kill them all or was the whole thing a frame job? Oh my God, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I really thought, oh, I'm, I'm going to be able to, I'm going to be able to figure this out. I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm basically a detective. <laughs> totally. And a lawyer. I am very conflicted. It is my personal opinion after doing all the research that she was probably a very physical mistress with her servants and that she did take things too far. The Black Knight of Hungary, her husband, really did have this terrible reputation and they were very close. So I think maybe she was aggressive to the extreme. And I don't think she valued peasants' lives or maybe servants' lives in the way that we would now. But I don't think she just murdered for fun. My guess is... She had some oopsie-daisies? She had some oopsie-daisies, or maybe not even that, but people just were like, you don't want to work for her? She's a bitch. And then the medical stuff, because it was from a different culture, it was unexpected. I mean, they are burning and cutting. It just got missed misinterpreted and of course if you are cutting out tumors you might lose a few along the way Mm -hmm. not all of them are going to survive 16th century medical techniques no matter how advanced too often i think that in marriages we conflate husband and wife Mm -hmm. i can see where his reputation became hers regardless of whether or not it was true Mm -hmm. i like that yeah but i think largely i think most of it was a frame job because no one no one wants could kill 650 people without getting caught especially if you're just throwing bodies in a moat and starving dogs you go the logical way and i'm over here trying to be philosophical and be like who in the 17th century wants to be a indebted to a woman at that point as a king who wants one person one widowed woman standing in the way of unification and conquering. Nobody. Yeah. Nobody then. Yeah, no. She she was a huge problem for the Habsburgs, financially and politically. And so it makes sense. Mm -hmm. I like to think that maybe Torzo was trying to protect her, so he wrote these outlandish things to the king, and then he was like, all right, lady, this is not going to go well for you. But if you just hang out in this castle, I'll just keep you here. I'm so sorry about this, but that way your family gets to keep their lands. She actually made a will that gave it all to them. And he was like, I'll keep it from going to trial by making it so ridiculous. And then he kind of wanted to let it lie. And King Matthias II was like, no, no, seriously, we need this trial. Keep going, keep going. And so my question is, did Torzo murder her so that she would die before the trial so that the family would be saved? I think yes. Okay. I don't think Thortso had her best interest at heart at all, period. 
I, yeah, I'm sorry. He could have found another way. I think he was getting money from oh, both okay. sides, and he wanted to keep it that way. And I definitely, definitely, definitely think he killed her. You don't just be like, my hands are cold, and then drop dead. I think the guard supposedly said something like, Mm-mm, you'll be fine. You don't. <laughs> Go to bed. Yeah, I, I. Yeah. But I do think, I do think all of the, her medical study, 100%. That's why everyone was freaked out by her. Yep, like witches. Yeah, if you're cutting a tumor out, like you said, you're not going to keep everybody. With no anesthetic, you would hear screams. You would. Especially if you're cauterizing Mm -hmm. a wound, Mm -hmm. for God's sake. You would have some oopsie daisies. Good lord, that would hurt. All right, so final verdict. Erica, guilty or not guilty? Oh, gosh. I think, I think there is reasonable doubt. And so I'm going to have to say not guilty. I can't convict her knowing there's so much hearsay and circumstantial evidence and very little physical or concrete evidence and no motive. Yes. I, there's way, there's a lot of motive in this story, but none of it's from her. I agree. I have to concur. I think that she was wrongfully accused mm-hmm. or at least things were severely exaggerated. I think she was a good person though no i would agree like i can see that maybe she did murder a servant or two in rage mm-hmm. but that's not the same thing as being a serial killer it's not good i want to clarify bad 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 but not the same but not 650 people mass murder no and that my friends is that we hope you have enjoyed our first ever spooktacular episode Tune in next Monday for another terrifying historical tale, The Salem Witch Trials. Speaking of suspicious women doing suspicious things. Till then, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And don't forget Patreon. Yes, and we have merch. Absolutely, which you can find on our website. Please visit us at thepithychronicle.com to view our show notes, shop for our very, very cool merch, and find our children's series, mm-hmm. Once Upon a History. I'm Caroline. And I'm Erica. And we are Pithily Yours. This episode is brought to you by the Pithy Chronicle, LLC. The Pithy Chronicle is intended for education, entertainment, and non-commercial purposes. Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the owner may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity. While we offer lots of sarcasm, this podcast does not offer any advice or services. Listening to this podcast may induce fits of laughter, unexpected distraction, or uncontrollable rage at the subjects. Hopefully not at us. We hope you learned something today. If not, so sorry. Please be advised we are not experts in the following fields. Medical, legal, financial, technological, thermonuclear engineering, submarine warfare, neuroscience, or cat husbandry. Thanks for listening to our little disclaimer. Just covering our history-loving asses. Bye!